podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Jones! Bowden! He's got it! England have won the World Cup by the barest of margins! Stokes flashes it away through the covers for four and England have won the match! Hello and welcome to a sort of Christmassy edition of the Analyst Inside Cricket because firstly we've got some surprise guests, uh, two people who won the Ashes in the 1980s and haven't seen each other for quite a while and they were reunited in our virtual cricket club the other night. I'll tell you who they are in a minute or two. Of course the, the, the third test at the MCG is starting shortly on Christmas Day in the evening at 11.30pm. There's been lots of talk in the press and in the media generally about the the prospects for the game. Lots of Australian pundits saying it's going to be 5-0. I heard uh, Ian Chappell and, and Mark Taylor certainly saying that on a Channel 9 uh, broadcast. Uh, England being a bit defensive, obviously Joe Root talking about the bowlers not pitching it up enough. And then they've had a real heart-to-heart, the England camp talking about batting and looking at the wickets that they lost, the dismissals, etc. Silverwood saying he wouldn't have Chris Silverwood saying he wouldn't have changed the teams, even in hindsight, that they selected for the first two tests. Generally, uh, a bit of turmoil in the England camp, and it sounds as if the uh, replacements are going to be Zach Crawley for Rory Burns and Johnny Bairstow for Ollie Pope, and presumably Mark Wood as well uh, for one of either Broad or Anderson. So those are the, the likely changes. I guess Jack Leach will also get a call up. There's a lot of of stuff for England to deal with. Now, in this, as I say, in this sort of Christmassy edition of the Analyst Inside Cricket, we're going to actually delve into a, a slightly different topic in, in due course, NFTs, non-fundable tokens. Uh, I, myself and uh, a colleague, Richard Norton, who's been a very active member of our virtual cricket club, in fact, an essential member of our virtual cricket club over the last 12 months, uh, has he and I have created an Ashes Heroes NFT collection. So we'll tell you about those in a bit. And in fact, just as a little tip, if you are desperately looking for a Christmas present for particularly a male member of your family or a female member of your family, and you just can't think of anything to buy them, this could be your solution, a last minute solution, which doesn't require an Amazon delivery. So we'll talk to you about that in a bit. But I said first, we'd hear from two Ashes heroes from the 1980s. Uh, In our virtual cricket club the other night, we had Chris Broad, who of course is the father of Stuart, who was opening the batting in the 1986-7 Ashes series, which of course England won under Mike Gatting. And his opening partner, and by the way, Chris Broad was the man of the series in that particular test series. He he scored three centuries and about 560-odd runs and was an absolute rock for England through those five tests. His opening partner was someone who's probably less well-known and less well-remembered in a way, but perhaps uh, unfairly so, Bill Athey, the Yorkshireman who then went down to play for Gloucestershire, uh, a very tenacious, doughty, dogged batsman with shots as well. And he was sort of pressed into opening in that series. Uh, Will Slack, the late Will Slack, my old Middlesex colleague, was also on the tour and didn't get a call up in the end. Bill Athey was preferred to him opening the batting and the opening pair broad at Athy was absolutely superb in that series. They put on a massive 200 stand in one test and about 120 in another test. And they were just the absolute foundation of England's great success 
in that series. So in the virtual cricket club, I actually surprised Chris Broad by bringing Bill Athey on, who he hadn't seen for about 10 years. Uh, and they chatted together about their memories of that series. And then you know, at the end, they just had a few bits of advice, a few words of advice for the current England openers in the next test. And here that advice is Chris Broad first and after that Bill Athey. Listen, they've just got to get in the Australians' faces. They've, they've, got, to, they've got to be more aggressive. They've got to be, uh, and I don't mean that in a, an attacking sense, go out and play shots all around the ground, but in their defence, just be more uh, attacking in their defence. Assertive, maybe. Assertive, yes, good word. Um, and listen, we don't have a spinner. Uh, Joe Root is, is our only spinner, but you know, pick your best bowlers. Pick the ones who are going to, you know, keep the Australians from scoring loads of runs. But mainly, we've got to get 350, 400 runs in the first innings to put some pressure on the Australians. And then let's see where we go from there. Bill? Yeah, well, very much the same. Um, just dig in, dig in, show some, you know, show some guts, show, show some fight. We've just got to dig in, bat sessions. Uh, and the longer you bat, the, the more luck you have. You know, they can all play. All the England boys can play. They just need to occupy the crease. And the longer you bat, it tends to get easier and easier and easier. So hopefully, just bat time and things will begin. The worm will turn, hopefully. So interesting thoughts there from Chris Broad and Bill Athey. Broad. Revealing, if those of you don't know, that uh, actually Stuart Broad was born very prematurely and was only two pounds when he was actually born and had to spend, I think, the first six weeks of his life in an incubator. Uh, amazing how he's turned out, isn't it? Even taller than his than his dad, who was already about six foot four. So it just shows that what happens at birth doesn't necessarily relate to what happens later. And uh, it'll be interesting to see whether Stuart Broad gets gets picked for the third test at the MCG. And will he go up the list of our Ashes Heroes rankings? Because, as I said at the start of this, we've created, Richard Norton and I, Norts, as he's known, a digital creative expert and a, obviously a, a mad cricket fan, and Derek Armandzai, we have created this NFT Ashes Heroes collection. Right, Norts. Now, firstly, what the hell is an NFT? Enlighten those Okay, I could do it for you, son. I can do that. It's going to be an open and honest chat like those England dressing room conversations. Um, so an NFT stands for a non-fungible token. I'm not sure I'm a massive fan of the word fungible, but it is what it is. Um, and they exist on something called the blockchain. So I suppose to give those people ready, sort of with furrowed quizzical brow listening to this, what's that? So essentially a blockchain is a kind of technology that was created bizarrely by somebody who nobody knows who that person is. It's a very, very interesting concept to start with. A guy called Satoshi Nakamoto, or that's the name they gave themselves. And it was basically used as the technology on which Bitcoin, which probably lots of people have heard about, was created. But in a very simple sense, blockchain is, is basically a stored database, like any other database. But the thing that makes it different is the nature of that. The data that's put on it is actually in blocks, as the name suggests, and part of a chain, as the name suggests. 
And in that way, it means it can't be changed, which is kind of interesting because databases typically come in a tabulature form and they can have the data can be changed, manipulated, moved around, erased, etc. But the beauty of a blockchain is that whatever you put on it is kind of there for all to see. It's on a, it's decentralized as well. So anybody can see the information. So it's kind of in a way it creates kind of trust, veracity, that sort of thing. Um, and uh, typically when it started blockchain, you know, people would know about it through the ideas of cryptocurrency. But then maybe three or four years ago, uh, people started experimenting with NFTs, non-fungible tokens, and what you could do with them. And, and in effect, they're, they're basically certificates, smart contracts that basically entitle the owner of the NFT to actually kind of uh, do with the thing that they own, whatever they want to, depending on the nature of the contract. But What's kind of happened in the last 12 months, which I suppose has garnered lots of attention, is this way that kind of art, in a way, has kind of led the way with NFTs. The idea that you have, obviously, non-fungible suggests uniqueness, and therefore there's been these exceptions where people have seen people selling these things for what appears to be millions of pounds. And I, and that, I guess some people feel that's a bit... Why would, you, why would you pay to own something that you can kind of digitally own by just sort of grabbing on the internet? And, and doing it like that. Well, there's more to it than that, because I suppose the NFT itself isn't necessarily a representation of the art. I think the more important word, Simon, is the word token, because it's what you do with the token that makes the kind of experience interesting, because it doesn't just mean, oh, I have access to this piece of art and I can tell people, oh, I own that. It actually can be used for lots and lots of things beyond a visual thing. Equally, because it's digital, it can be it can be music, it can be film, it can be it can be just you know digital illustration, it can be all kinds of things. And I guess uh, the idea being that you can then do things with that in terms of like giving taking contracts in a way that you allow people into real life experiences, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And that's where I think it gets interesting. Hence why we kind of had our conversations and we thought, well, maybe there's something as a as an experiment, as a project, as something to give to the world that's around the ashes, cricket, history in a way, because obviously you can put data onto the NFTs, but also technology. And it's, yeah, I know I, they're already, I mean, the likes of, I suppose, in the IPL, that sort of cricket, those, those, those uh, franchises have, have started to move into this realm. Um, so the kind of, yeah, we had that conversation and off we went. And the ashes seemed like a very apt, timely time to do it, so to speak. Mm, yeah. In fact, it's interesting. It's 60 years since the invention of the Panini sticker, which yeah. a lot of you know football fans will be very familiar with. And it was two brothers, actually, Panini brothers, who, who thought it up in the 1960s. And obviously then, you know, our generation, the sort of uh, baby, boomers, baby boomers generation kind of bought the books and the stickers, the football stickers, and stuck them in. There was even cricket versions. And I remember, I actually remember Middlesex had a little tray in the shop on the counter with lots of uh, the cards in different uh, trays in different little slots for the different players. And the popular players, obviously, the cards have run out. In my little tray, there was loads of them still oh, left. I was going to say, I was yeah. say how, much, how much would a Simon Hughes Panini sticker be worth? <laughs> well, I can tell you the I can answer that, actually, because um, I remember hearing when I was signing autographs once and I was signing a, a, one of my stickers... And I heard someone behind me, a kid, uh, sort of saying, "I'll swap you six Simon Hughes for one Mike Gatting." So that was my <laughs> that was my value. But anyway, um, it's it's an interesting one that that obviously has developed digitally now. So really, the these Ashes Heroes NFTs are sort of digital version 
of a panini sticker but with extra benefits as absolutely in, absolutely you know, I mean, statistics if you... of the players a bio that i've written about them their ranking um you know a very interesting bit of art which which kind of recreates them and, and captured captures their in individuality and and also for some of these players we've actually created a potential link with them so you can actually zoom call them as well if you own an nft for say monty panasar you could actually uh, uh be arranged to have a, a talk with him too so it, it, it is at the token part of it is like a ticket or a pass almost to a sort of secret little world in a way would you say yeah absolutely i mean if you look at uh many a crypto wallet which is essentially where people store their their, their digital crypto goods you will very often see there's an arena that's for like currency if people want to trade in crypto currencies or whatsoever. but there's also often very uh headed up sections called collectibles and this is exactly what it's about you you can as a nft collector bring these things together that's not to say that obviously you can buy what you want for the community you want or maybe the art you want but equally, once you have it, you can do what you want with it. You can keep it, you can trade it, you can sell it, you can gift it, you can swap it. So that sort of principle, like you say, going back to the concept of paninis, there is there is something in that. I think what grabs people's attentions is when they see certain collections, you know, gather steam and they're then selling for what was sold for a price is now selling for a million at Sotheby's. Everyone gets very excited about that. I mean, there's, there are complexities about it, which I don't think this is necessarily the... The, the cricket podcast is the place to go into the, the the pros and cons of doing things on Ethereum or doing things on Tezos. Do things on Tezos, not Ethereum. That's just my aside. Um, it's, it's stuff like that, but that's that, people can see it when they go to it. But yeah, as a notion, the idea of having a relationship between something you can own that's yours that is unique, and then being that using that as a ticket into a community which is kind of what we're looking to do that goes beyond the collection but equally having the opportunity to access something in the real world like for example simon um on several of the nfts that have been purchased so far you've also been sending people uh, your book on the ashes have you not signed yes. copies etc right. the, the cricket's greatest rivalry uh, the Ashes, the history of the Ashes in twelve great matches, uh, which is the book you're talking about. So I have got uh, quite a lot of those actually, which I, I'd like to pass on to people who who buy these NFTs. You could slip in some of your Panini stickers in there as well. So what we've done is we've created a list of a hundred. Ashes heroes out of what we reckon is about 600 cricketers that have actually played in the Ashes through the uh, the history of the Ashes, nearly 140 years. 1882 actually was the first Ashes Test match. Well, England and Australia played each other a few times before that, but the first official sort of recognition of the Ashes, or the, the, the in a way the Test match that created the Ashes was in 1882 when England lost to Australia at the Oval and the, the famous Frederick the Demon Spotheth bowled England out with 14 wickets in the match. They're only needing 80-odd to win. He bowled them out for 77. So it was an exciting match. It created a mock obituary in the, the sporting times, and then the, the idea of the Ashes was created from that point. So 1882 is our starting point for these great 100 Ashes heroes. They're ranked from 100 to 1. And, of course, Frederick the Demon Spotheth is in there. As he should be as well. I think, I suppose the question 
for me, Simon, and obviously uh, if listeners with a keen ear and a keen eye on Ashes history want to know, if you're looking at the several hundred players on both sides collectively who've played in the Ashes, how do you come to put them in a list of 100? It's not easy, obviously, uh, and there'll be lots of arguments about it. But I, I started, my starting point actually was looking at all the stats, which are at the back of this book, Cricket's Great Rivalry, all the kind of leading stats, leading run scorers, leading wicket takers in Ashes series, highest partnerships, um, you know, best bowling figures, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I made a list of all those cricketers first who've had a major impact in either an Ashes Test match or an Ashes series. And then I listed them. And then I looked at some other data as well. I looked at players who've played in the most Ashes winning series, you know, who've won the most series as, as a member of a team. And so eventually I got to a list of 160 cricketers who I felt had had you know, a major impact, either runs, wickets, even in Monty Panasar's case, just holding out for a draw, which turned that series or gave England the, the, the sort of impetus to win that 2009 series. So I, I made a list of these 160 and then boiled it down to 100 uh, through, you know, how many Ashes series have they won? How many centuries have they scored in Ashes test matches? How many matches have they had a real major influence on? And therefore came down to, to a ranking. And it's difficult to, to be certain about it. It is subjective. I did seek the opinions of, of two people I felt who, who knew the history of the Ashes really well. And that was Jeffrey Boycott, who was very happy to uh, contribute his thoughts on various players, both pro and con. And also the esteemed Australian journalist, who in fact originally is English, Gideon Hay, who writes for the Times and also for the Australian and he's covered every Ashes series since the 1980s. Boycott played in, I think, 10 Ashes series from the 1960s through to the 1980s. So, you know, those two cover, you know, 60 or 70 years. Plus, I've done my book, so I've covered the whole kind of gamut of Ashes tests as well. So between us, we felt we had a fairly good knowledge and spread and uh, kind of range of uh, the, the players and who should or shouldn't be included and came up with the list, which I drew the list up and then Boix and, and Gideon kind of assessed it and we argued about it a bit and eventually came up with the final list. Now, you know what I'm going to have to ask you there then? Like, uh, you know, I've, I've seen... Is um, boycott in it, <laughs> firstly? Well, it is going to be boycott related because obviously one... He's not a man well, Of course short. he's in it. Of he's course not, he's in of it. Of course he's in it, but he's not short of opinions, is he? Mm, no. So... What were some of his, let's say, recalibrations of your list? So um, I mean, what, interestingly, someone like Kenny Barrington, the famous England batsman from the 1960s, who has one of the highest test averages in history, uh, somewhere around, around nearly 60, I think 58 is his test average, and a lot of test matches. And Boix, despite his performances in the Ashes, uh, Barrington, in other words, number of runs, I think he scored five or six hundreds and you know, quite plenty of runs. He said it never actually made a, a big impact on an Ashes test and there was flat pitches and a lot of them were draws and so on. So, you know, he, that reduced his presence, kind of put, put him quite low down the list. I mean, obviously, um, Boyx being, you know, died in the wool Yorkshireman was was quite pro a few of the older Yorkshire players, um, people like, um, well, obviously, Len Hutton is clearly in, in the top 20, but players like Johnny Peel, the left arm spinner, um, Hedley Verity, another fine left arm spinner who died in the Second World War. 
Wilfred Rhodes, who, of course, took the most ever first-class wickets, over 4,000 wickets, another Yorkshireman. Um, so he was he was quite clever Yorkshireman, but, you know, he was fair as well. And 100 he came Yorkshiremen, up with good, He came up with some good suggestions. <laughs> well, yeah, he came up with some good suggestions. And, and of course, I, I then said, well, how do you feel about your number, your ranking? And he went, I don't care. I don't care. But, of course, he does, really. So he's there. He's in the top 25. You know, not perhaps quite as high as he thinks he should be, maybe. I don't know. And, of course, uh, my own personal Ashes hero uh, is also in that list. I'm delighted to see. Uh, and it does go back away. I think it's because, why? where did I learn about it? I think years and years ago, probably when I was a teen, there was a TV doc. I think it was an Aussie uh, fictional documentary, so to speak. Uh, and I'm sure it was Hugo Weaving the Australian, it might be New Zealand actor, played in. But, of course, um, Douglas Jardine, isn't it? Innovator par excellence. So uh, he's in the list, isn't he? Of course he is. He changed cricket forever. He, yeah, he, 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 his, yeah, he did change cricket forever. I mean, he um, he didn't actually make many runs in the Ashes, but obviously he had a massive influence on that Bodyline series. So, you know, clearly he has to be in there. There'll be some... You know, our number 100, who's already been bought, by the way, um, David Steele. Now, David Steele only played in, I think, six Ashes tests. But in five of them, he scored a 50. So, uh, and he came in in the 75 series when England was sort of trying to find somebody to blunt Thompson and Lilly. And they just were, were you know, bereft of ideas. And they sent in the man who, uh, who was described as the bank clerk who went to war. Uh, with the grey hair and the, the funny NHS spectacles and the, the little cap on top of his head. And you know, I think uh, famously um, that Jeff Thompson, sort of when he saw him come out to bat, kind of said, oh, who's this? Who's come out here then? Is this Father Christmas? And um, he played superbly, lunged onto the front foot, blunted the pace of Thompson and Lily. It didn't help England win the series, but it sort of stopped them in their tracks a bit. It stopped the Aussies in their tracks a bit. And after the demolition of 74-5. So um, it, it's, you know, it, it, although David Steele didn't have a you know massive impact on Ashes over time, he did have on that one series, and he was even BBC Sports Personality of the Year, believe mm. it or not, in 1975. So, you know, he, he had to be included, even if it was right at the end of the list. And of course, Tomo really didn't understand Santa Claus, did he? Because obviously, <laughs> David Steele came out without a beard. <laughs> I don't know what they celebrate yeah. down under. No, that's put now, like we say, the owner bought on the the NFT bought on the Tetris blockchain of number one hundred Davis has gone. But of course, the beauty of it is they might want to keep it. They might want to grow their collection. They might want to sell it or pass it on to someone else. That's that's the point. It is a very uh, transferable asset, as it were, to speak. So, a bit like you were saying the the Monty one. Really, Monty's in the list because of his kind of stoic defence, probably at Cardiff, rather than giving Adam Gilchrist batting practice at Perth. But the fact of the matter is, you might purchase that because you've got the opportunity to actually go one-to-one with Monty, who's a lovely geezer. We've met him on the Virtual Cricket Club. But equally, you might want to give that to someone else to have the experience. So, I mean, this is, this is the beauty of it. And again, you know, us as creators of that, because we're quite flexible in what the rewards are, so to speak. So we thought the, the, the sort of starting price for these is about £20, but they'll vary massively, sort of partly according to supply and demand, really or demand anyway. Um, just tell people, Norts, how they buy these, because um, it may be uh, sort of baffling to some people to hear that you you buy them through the currency Tezos 
Tell us about that. I mean, yeah, it's, so, it could be a bit off-putting. Yeah, so um, I suppose that's the, the, the thing about crypto. Well, I guess what people hear about it, because it's, it's kind of like NFT ultimately was the word. I don't know how NFT is a word because it's an acronym, but it was word of the year. So people hear about it and then you might sometimes encounter it or think you want to get involved in that sort of thing. And it looks a bit daunting. But to be honest, it's like anything, really like playing the reverse sweep if you try once you've tried it it becomes a lot easier doesn't it um so i guess what you need to do we've chosen to use um a blockchain called tezos to create the nfts we've done that because of its environmental and sustainable credentials rather than using something called ethereum which uh, i won't bore you with the details of complication why but it's it's the right choice so to actually function on that you have to use a currency called the tez uh known on crypto markets by the letters xtz uh, so essentially, to do that, you need to do two things, really. One is you have to have a Tezos crypto wallet, and there are lots of different versions of that that you can get, such as Kukai is one or Temple. And then once you, and again, it sounds complicated, but actually, the process of getting a crypto wallet is no more different than buying a train ticket, really. It's just the process of going online, pressing a few buttons, and away you go, um, keeping your password secret, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then maybe go to somewhere like Coinbase, which in effect is like a cryptocurrency exchange, and you buy some, you you take your, you pay with your debit or credit card, you you buy some currency like you would a foreign currency, convert it into the crypto of your choice. In this case, Tezos XT and Z, XTZ, and then you send it to your wallet. The thing about um, crypto wallets, and again going back to this thing about blockchain being very open, is that if you have a crypto wallet. You are anonymous unless you choose to be uh, and to reveal who you are in the world by giving your giving it some sort of handle or name. All the world sees is your public address. So all crypto wallets, regardless of what blockchain on, have a public address, and that, in effect, much like a postal address, is the way that things get swapped. So you can exchange from, say, currency can be swapped from one address to the other, or the actual NFT itself, and then. The beauty of that is you can see then on that blockchain, we go back to the transparency of it, every, how everything's kind of happened. And that's it. So essentially, you get a wallet, you get some, you get some Tezos or something like Coinbase, you put it in your wallet, go to the, um, you go to ashesheroes.com, which is the first place to go. That will take you through to the actual site where the NFTs are being minted. We're currently up to 65 at the moment uh, that's available, although some have already been bought. Um, and I guess, I suppose, Simon, over the next two or three weeks or so we'll kind of put them up and create that little bit of sense of theater and drama on the basis that as we get in that to that top 10 it might it might be more exciting than the actual ashes itself well actually, it, the way I, I think it, to be honest um, but, it already is it already yeah, is yeah anyway um I'm, I'm i apologize if you're all baffled by this uh, terminology but if you go to ashesheroes.com it all is explained uh, how to do it what this uh, collection is what they look like Nortz has actually created a really interesting virtual gallery of all the uh, different NFTs, Ashes Heroes NFTs as well. They're drawn out by, they're created by a very clever artist called Mike Cannings, who we commissioned to do it. And you'll you'll see kind of individual icons for certain uh, players like Merv Hughes' big walrus moustache and the little red hanky that Steve Wall used to hang in his pocket every time he went out to bat, the superstitious uh, thing that he had. So they're, they're quite distinctive, actually, these, these pieces of art. So look out for them. 
go to ashesheroes.com and all will be explained there. Just like to say, Nortz, thank you very much for all the work you've done on that so far. And also, you know, thank you massively for all the work you've done on the Virtual Cricket Club as well. Oh. And I think uh, we should just finish by reading. I want to read a message out, actually, from one of our club members, the Virtual Cricket Club members. This is a club that, I, that we run every week, uh, an interview with a, a leading player or leading figure from cricket, uh, on a Wednesday or Thursday night. Um, you can join us by going to worldsbestcricketclub.com. It's six pounds a month, uh, but part of that proceeds goes to the Professional Cricketers Trust charity. And it's a really interactive group of cricket fans that's growing all the time. And we have a WhatsApp group as well, which is uh, you know constantly full of interesting messages from all around the world from cricket fans that have part of this club so have a look at it because it really is an engaging community and can so i say like, simon can i yes, say with that the fact that uh one of the developments in the world's best cricket club of course is that simon Mann now he's had, has his own personal statistician that he uses on the radio virtually every time he's on bbc he's, isn't he yeah pushka who uh, from bangalore who's been nominated this year as our virtual cricket club member of the year and uh, he's got an absolute library of interesting books that he relays some of his uh, stats and information from. But I'd just like to finish by reading a, a message from one of our Virtual Cricket Club members, Omar, who's been a passionate advocate of, of our weekly meetings. And he just says, Evening, folks. I just wanted to say what a pleasure it's been to be part of this brilliant club. I think I first joined it back in March. The first guest was Sir Geoffrey Boycott, and I haven't looked back since. As some of you are aware, I've never been able to play this beautiful game of ours because of my cerebral palsy, which I've had from birth. Incidentally, I was actually the same weight as Stuart Broad, two pounds, two ounces, when I was born. Because I'm physically challenged, this club has given me the opportunity to feel like I'm part of something inside the game and gain an insight into what it's like actually playing the game at a professional amateur or club level, or even just for fun. Add to that the chance to meet great legends of the game and share knowledge and opinion with like-minded fans. What more could I ask for? Thank you very much for this wonderful club. Your efforts are truly appreciated. And he says, thanks also to the members for the interaction, humour and friendship. It really has been a pleasure to get to know you and it definitely has a community feel to it. The club nights are genuinely the highlight of my week. Isn't that lovely that... He feels that, and actually, lots of other members sort of responded with similar. Oh, I tell you, I've been to. dabbing, I've been dabbing the tears all week, Simon. Christmas, Christmas makes people emotional, doesn't it? But yeah. in this particular case, yeah, I think, I think a combination of the, the people we've had on. But again, I go back very similar to the NFT thing about the community that sits behind the collection. It's the same with the, the cricket club. To me, the, the the WhatsApp group is where the it's where mm. the ties are, are kind of bind, aren't they? So, so look out for that. Um, go to worldsbestcricketclub.com, read up about it and, and see if you can, can't join because it really has become a very fun, inclusive and interesting club to be a member of. And I'd just like to finish by saying thank you to all the members of that club who've been part of the last 14-month uh, journey uh, with all the guests that we've had as well and all your questions have been brilliant. Thank you so much to all the listeners of this podcast, faithfully uh, tuning in every week it's been tremendous fun and of course we'll be doing a, a regular uh, podcast after each day of the third test from the mcg which starts of course on christmas day in the evening 11 30 p.m we are crossing our fingers that england can turn it around though in our head maybe we don't think that'll happen 
but good luck, England. And finally, I'd just like to say, Norts, again, thank you very much for all you've done this year. And Merry Christmas to everyone. Merry Christmas. Come on, England. Podcast Network.